Blog Talk Radio. to get started, which we're waiting for our guest to log in. All you have to do is call. Okay, I guess I get to uh, extend it. <laughs> so, we're going to start off. I'm going to, uh, Donald Jocks is going to be coming online here in a few minutes. Um, talk going to talk about Space Analog Station and Earthsea. Uh, company that he has started is a nonprofit, and he is a father and grandfather and a veteran. He's a programmer, handyman, analog astronaut. He's got eight children and 15 grandchildren, and keenly aware of the, the future of our planet. He's of pollution, climate con- tr- change, and the opportunities SpaceX and Blue Origin offer for the exploration and settlement of space. He is worried about these things. He will be attending the Mars Society Annual Conference the first weekend of October, and that'll be on the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th. On the 6th, which is the Friday, he will be presenting the Ecological Life Support System he has been developing as a chief scientist of Earthseed Incorporated. Seven years ago, he built an RV with a difference. In addition to the living space, he added a fish pond, swamp, and garden. The analog, the mobile analog space habitat, also known as MASH, is the mobile research site and educational platform that has already traveled around the country twice, sharing his message. Don, of course, known as Ducky, is the CEO, Chief Scientist of Earthseed Incorporated. And you can find him at earthseed.space. That's earthseed, S-E-E-D, dot space. And again, he will be speaking in the March Society. Now, along with this, we've got some other new shows coming. k Radio is expanding, and we're going to have... Uh, Obviously, we, we've always had authors on and entertainers and and uh, art, lots of artists, all varieties. We, will, of course, will continue in that vein and we'll continue in our space quest with, with Donald Jocks. But we will also be adding some uh, shows that are going to be talking a lot about the history of the areas. And uh, I specifically am interested, obviously, in Mesa, Arizona. That's where I have hailed since high school, actually. I've been here since I was nine years old. And uh, while I'm not in Mesa now, I definitely have written about Mesa and the new series, Lonely Hearts. And the Lonely Hearts is all based in Mesa, Arizona from 1978 and into the 80s. Oh, I'm very excited because I, I just realized how much 
you know, lots of people are interested in the history of Mesa. And some of the very spooky and even um, locations in Mesa from very early on. And uh, we'll be actually covering a lot of that and have some guests on to talk about those places. I mean, did you know that Mesa had an alligator farm? <laughs> I know until a few years ago, I didn't even know that. Of course, I didn't get here. I didn't come to Mesa until I was nine years old. So uh, obviously that was not until the early 70s. So I've been here for, you know, since that time, but I didn't know a lot of things that, uh, about history prior to uh, the 70s in Mesa. And it's very exciting to find out a whole lot of things that I didn't know about. And some of them are very exciting since we have October coming, of course, time for Halloween. Already have events that have started even back in August. I mean, it's getting to the point where Halloween is all year round. I'm not sure when that happened, but either way, it's definitely here, and we are going to be deep into it. So I'll be talking about such places as the Allocator Farm and the story behind that, some of the basements in the Old Town Mason, and right down on Main Street, uh, they had been doing a lot of refurbishing on the, on the storefronts, and that's really quite exciting. And going back to uh, some of the roots, even. So the uh, have theaters there and, and, and such and so forth, we'll be talking about not only the restoration, and but the history of those locations, and even some spooky stories involving basements in some of these places. And uh, there are also some other locations where uh, some actual murders happen. So we will definitely be getting into those and going into October. So I'm quite excited about that. So we're on hold here and I need to, uh, I know Donald is on his way. Can we come on here in this few minutes? And we will definitely get him for not getting on here in time. <laughs> now I'm going to put this into a mode and then I have some fun music here and we will talk about some more things in less than a minute.
trying out a brand new microphone, and I have a feeling that we can get the first few minutes of this discussion. So I'm going to be uh, kind of going over top of some of what we already, what I already talked about. So this has showed up terrific, but uh, I've got a brand new microphone. It's one of those blue yetis, and I'm quite excited about it, but I just need to uh, obviously get used to some of the features on this. And so I apologize if, if it was blank air. That's uh, it called, you know, getting used to your equipment. <laughs> we'll be talking to Donald Jocks here in a few minutes, and he's going to be talking about the Space Animal Station and EarthAid.org, which is a, uh, it's a, not org, I'm sorry, it's a, it's a nonprofit organization, but it's, that's not the website. The website is EarthSeed, S-E-E-D, dot space, that's EarthSeed, dot space. And Donald is the CEO and Chief Scientist of EarthSeed Incorporated. Donald is a father, grandfather, and a veteran, programmer, handyman, and analog astronaut. He has eight children and 15 grandchildren. So he's keenly interested in the future. He's concerned about the pollution, climate change, and the opportunities that SpaceX and Blue Origin offer for the exploration and settlement in space. He'll be attending the Mars Society Annual Conference right here in, at ASU in Tempe, Arizona, from October 5th through the 8th. On October 6th, which is the Friday, he'll be presenting the Ecological Life Support System he has been developing as two scientists of Earthseed Incorporated. For seven years, seven years ago, he built an RV that with a difference. In addition to the living space, he added a fish pond, swamp, and garden. And all the events that we've been to, uh, I've seen a lot of the people interested, especially the kids, in this fish pond. And of course, yes, these are live fish. The Mobile Unlock Space Habitat is a mobile research site and educational platform that has already traveled around the country twice sharing his message. And we hope that he gets on soon because this is supposed to be his show. <laughs> uh, we're now into 10 minutes and he he's running late. Oh, I think that might be him. Hang on. Are you there, Don? Hello there. Yeah, you're only 10 minutes late, but who's counting? <laughs> so... But just saying that I was on a brand new microphone, so I'm trying to get used to it. So I have a feeling that we lost the entire five minutes of the beginning of the show. Oh so no. um, I'm good, but I had a I had a minor um, uh, malfunction on the bus, and um, I had to repair one of my pumps that was badly overflowing a little bit ago. Wow. And it was from a clogged line, so I was able to get it done, and it's it's now working like it should be. <laughs> well, see, that's the whole whole problem with with uh, you know something like this. There's always something. It's kind of like a house. You always have something you have to fix. You know, and while sometimes that's true, um, for the most part, the system that I've got here actually. Um, works well and has been working well for 
nigh on four and a half years. Um, I have an aquaponic setup where I have a 300-gallon fish tank with 50 tilapia that then is pumped up to a swamp area where I have duckweed and a small collection of swamp plants. And then that drains down into the garden space. Um, I'm getting ready to replant, so I don't have a whole lot in there, just one last lone tomato that's got like five cherries on it that are I'm kind of hoping they'll come into fruition here soon. And then the water gets pumped back up into the fish pond, all nice and clean for the fish. I do not have an active uh, filter system. I haven't needed to for, like I say, four and a half years. And what I have discovered is that if when the system's working well, I don't even have to change the water. Wow. In most aquaponic oh. systems, a lot of people will change their, their water in their tank uh, a couple times a year. Oh. Um, I have found that with the biological components first going up and into the swamp area, and what that does is that kind of, it, it's a very slow-moving kind of uh, mini creek, and then when it, it lets all of the fish poop solids uh, settle to the bottom of the swamp, which makes food for the plants that are growing there, and then the clean water at the top then dribbles down and goes into the garden, and it's fresh and full of nutrients uh, for the plants. And it keeps my garden space from getting all clogged up with the fish poop. Um, and this is kind of what you're going to be going over and talking about and during Ecological Life Support System information at this uh, March Society conference, correct? Yes. In fact, um, in the years since I started doing this research, it's now been, wow, almost 15 years since I started looking at aquaponics as a foundation for a biological life support system. The whole idea is if you're going to build an ecological system, you've got to start with something that's easy to pair that will give you the basic foundation. And that was easy to do with an aquaponic systems where you pair a fish pond with a garden. And it's a completely recirculating system. So it's semi-closed in that regard. It's not completely closed because you do have evaporation from the tank. You do have leakage. There, You're taking the plants out of this uh, two-part ecology, but you do have bacteria that help facilitate cleaning the water so that the plants can take up the nutrients and then clean the water for the fish. Um, I started with aquaponics, like I say, 15 years ago, and we have been progressively adding different species to the system. And um, identifying which species will actually work within the system to keep it compact. My, Obviously, my goal is to let a little space you have there. Oh, yeah. Uh, my, my, my mini farm, as I call it, is uh, 12 feet long and approximately 8 feet wide and 6 feet tall at the center. I have uh, artificial 
artificial lighting. Uh, I do have one pump from the garden to the swamp and another pump, I'm sorry, from the pond to the swamp and another pump from the garden back to the pond. So I have a two pump system. Uh, there is a sump under the garden for those who know a lot about ponds. I do have a sump. However, the sump stays fairly clean because by the time the water gets to the garden, most of the solids are captured through the swamp. Um, those who do do aquaponics might consider adding a swamp to their system as opposed to just doing a solids capture or maybe even a, a biological filter, which a lot will do. Um, but those can be very expensive to maintain. Uh, they're expensive to plumb. Uh, by putting a swamp between the pond and the garden, I solved several immediate issues. One was I increased my growing space. Uh, now I will be able to grow rice, watercress, water lettuce, um, as well as my duckweed, my frog's breath, uh, and a couple of other plants, swamp water plants that I've got in there. Those will all add to and be my primary source of food for the fish. Because when those components are then ground up, it provides a far more nutritious meal for the fish than does the commercial fish food that I'm using so far. Ah, so I know that we included the picture of the bus, and it, it appears to be like most mostly black. And so uh, let's talk about the evolution of this of the bus into an RV system. Okay, I started out after gutting the bus, and I went through probably six or seven different sets of drawings in preparing to decide how uh, I was going to do the inside. I, I had grandiose schemes of a, uh, a slide out on, uh, on one side. I had the idea of a fold over where parts of the roof would literally fold up and out and extend the roof space and um, uh, all sorts of great schemes. But when it all came down to actually doing the work, the challenge came in, but um, that would have been meant strengthening the frame and that's a lot of time and money and materials. And so I just opted to just work with what I had and that has turned out real well. Um, in the very beginning, uh, an interesting side story is that when I purchased the bus, um, I bought it on auction in, uh, uh, from a school in Morristown, Arizona, which is about 10 miles north, I think it's east, of um, Surprise, Arizona, which is about 10 or 15 miles northeast of Phoenix. So the bus yeah. was close. I was living in Phoenix at the time. And it was easy to uh, get to the bus, check it out, and then I decided to bid on it. And lo and behold, this is an, a 40-foot-long, 84-passenger school bus from made in 2001. And at auction, I picked it up for the final price of $1,700. Wow. But the story that's, gets that's even a lot of interesting. That's, that's less ahead. money than most most used car, cars are nowadays. Oh yeah, 
um, I, I was absolutely flabbergasted that I got it for that inexpensively. Now, the story was the bus had been sitting for five years um, and could not be started. So I paid $450 and had it towed to the mechanic in surprise. And the mechanic, I expected I'd drop it off, and it'd take him a week to figure out what was wrong, to get it running. You know, you do the battery change, the fluid change, all that kind of stuff, and it might need other mechanical work. Well, lo and behold, the mechanic called me back that night. Huh. And he but said, we have to recall that there, there were some critters or something in the engine. They evicted some field mice <laughs> from the turbocharger, <laughs> and the bus engine started right up. And for the so kids, mechanic saying, bill, nobody, none of them were were injured in the evacuation. <laughs> that is correct. Yeah. And in fact, the nest was moved with them. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, and the mechanic cost was around 1400 So my total cost to get into this running bus was just right around $3,000 total. Um, I was extremely fortunate uh, in that and, um, and so forth. And as I got it home, well, I didn't get it home. I, I had arranged with a former customer uh, she had a side yard she wasn't using and, and offered that for me to store the bus while I worked on it. And we arranged a, a monthly rent and, and so forth. And that worked out real well for the three years I was there. And we got there, and I backed the bus in. And lo and behold, about three days later, we got a notice from the city saying no commercial vehicles could be parked in the front yard. Well, school bus is a commercial vehicle. So I had 30 days to get it moved or relicensed. And boy, did I make a mad dash. Ripped off all the school bus materials on the outside. Did a mad dash. Uh, the state of Arizona has a lift of requirement to qualify as a conversion uh, to an RV. Um, there are six major items on the list. I was able to complete five of them and in the process, um, ended up in an argument with the um, the guy at the um, whatever they call it, the the licensing bureau, the title bureau, because I had a makeshift, I had a makeshift bed, a makeshift kitchen, um, and a temporary potty, just an old RV toilet. Uh, composting style. Um, I had a little sink and fridge and a basic water tank. So I had enough to qualify, but there there was one thing about the list that they had specified. They said that you needed to put the floor in first. I already have the floor. Now, <laughs> well, it has a floor, but what they wanted was a finished floor. Carpet, linoleum, wood, finished wood, whatever. And I says, no, no, well, wait a minute. That makes no sense. You don't put a finished floor in first when you're building a house. You put it in after you have the appliances in. Yeah. yeah because yeah. You, as you move the appliances, you move the cabinets, you move the, the, the beds in, you're going you're to scratch up that flooring and make a total mess out of it. Um, I must have argued with him for almost 10 minutes. And finally he gave in and he agreed to issue me a waiver. 
and I got my title for uh, the converted RV in the state of Arizona. Didn't cost me anything extra, <laughs> which was kind of nice. And yeah. uh, of course, uh, at that time, it was basically just the bus shell. Um, and I had also removed all of the side windows and blocked them in with insulation and uh, closed it in on the outside with some metal panels. Uh, so now with it licensed and legal to be parked in the front yard, oh, I also uh, painted the bus black. <laughs> I wanted to make sure there'd be no mistaking it was not a commercial vehicle. <laughs> right. And, and there's there nowhere on there does it say school anymore. <laughs> no, it does not. I even took the school bus lights off um, and and all. So uh, once, um, once all that was done and it was licensed, I was free to keep it parked where it was and begin to work on it. And the first thing that I did was inside, I divided up the space into four rooms galley style in a lot of rvs you have doors in different places you have closet door shower door you might have a bedroom door and they could be sliders they could be uh you know regular pull open doors um but usually you've got maybe one for the bedroom one for the bathroom and then you might have one for a closet if you've got a closet i actually have four rooms and you walk from one room to the next to the next and to the next and the accoutrements for each room are on each wall as you pass through so it's basically there's this 35 foot hallway and as you come through I kind of describe a basic tour in the front room where that you come up the stairs and there's the driver's seat behind from the driver's seat to the first wall is my bank um, let's see one two three eight that's where is the 24 lead acid six volt battery these are the storage for the power that comes from the solar panels, both on the roof and hinged on the sides. I have five panels on each side and 10 panels on the roof. These panels provide me 6,000 watts maximum of power during the course of a sunny day. And that power then has come down through my 5,000 watt inverter and charges my batteries to keep them about 65 to 85% charged most of the time. There are a few times if, if the sun comes out early in the morning and goes down late at night, I might get up to 100% charge. Um, but keep in mind, I'm using um, uh, lights, I'm using electricity in the pumps and the plant lighting and so forth through the day. So I'm using quite a bit of energy as I go through. From the front room, which is where my dining table is, um, we go through the door, and now we're standing in a room that has my workshop on the right-hand side and my kitchen, which I just recently remodeled, on the left-hand side. I have my single sink with nice faucet. I have my cabinets, a nice butcher block countertop. I have a two-burner induction stove, my two-piece toaster. I have my little two-door Magic Chef fancy tiny refrigerator from Home Depot. Um, and I have my do-it-all microwave. This is from Calafon, C-A-L-P-H-A-L-O-N. And I spotted this at, micro at Walmart one day. This little microwave oven is a microwave, an air fryer, 
and a convection oven all in one. Wow. And it does a really good job. I actually had pizza for lunch today out of that oven. <laughs> now, one of the curious things in, in thinking about living in a vehicle like this and having as many of the accoutrements of home is I have found devices that I can use that fulfill needs that we typically don't see in an RV. For example, I have a clothes washing machine underneath my refrigerator. I found Seems like this. An odd place for that, but okay. <laughs> this is actually made by LG. It is the pedestal drawer that normally sits underneath an LG washer at home. And I only had to modify a switch in the back to allow it to operate by itself. And now I have a washing machine in my RV underneath my refrigerator. Across from the refrigerator and, and microwave and now the washing machine, I actually found a compact tumble dryer that works on 110 volts. I've actually used both of these several times in the last two weeks since I bought them. They work very well. The 110 dryer does take a little longer than, than a home unit to dry the clothes, but it will do um, uh, the washer and the dryer. will wash a couple of pair of jeans, a couple of shirts, and some underwear. So I can do two, three days' worth of laundry um, in the washer and then dry it in the dryer. Now, we pass through the doorway into my living quarters, which one might expect the living quarters uh, to be quite Spartan. However, uh, with the galley-style layout, it's actually quite quite refreshing. It's, it's a little bit bigger than a walk-in closet. Actually, it's a little longer. But in here, I have my fold-down desk. I have a, a nice 32-inch uh, TV on a wall stand so I can move it around in the room as I need. Uh, my bed is a submarine-style bunk, so it's very narrow but I've installed a very firm four-inch piece of foam as my mattress. I have a second piece of foam sits up against the wall so I can use it as a, as a couch. Cabinets overhead, storage space under the bed, and I have about, I guess that's about a three-and-a-half-foot wide closet space, so I've got my clothes. Um, now, across from the bed is a lot of my life support stuff. I have a 12,000 BTU propane stove sitting on the wall. And above that, I have mounted an 18,000 BTU mini split wall unit whose uh, outdoor unit is actually suspended up underneath the floor of the bus, much like they do in most commercial buildings when they put AC units above the ceiling. I have my 40-gallon freshwater tank sits underneath the shower. Then the water heater, which is a 12-gallon water heater instead of the traditional 6-gallon for an RV. And then towards the front of the room onto the floor is my 10-gallon uh, gray water tank. So I, uh -huh. I am fully equipped. I can shower. Um, I can use the kitchen sink. Uh, I even actually this week I hooked up or set my, uh, uh, what do they call this thing for your teeth? It's uh, the sprayer thingy i forget water pick yeah. water pick that's it i even put that by the kitchen sink so now i can i can give my teeth a good service <laughs> thing kitchen, every day by the kitchen sink interesting well right because they did not have a bath sink yeah 
So you got so, one and, thing and in it, that house to be utilized for everything. It does. But that's yeah. actually a good thing uh, because when I'm washing dishes, I'm reminded, oh, i got to do my teeth. There you go. <laughs> so there's there's lots of trade-offs as we go. So as I'm sitting here and I'm looking at the there's there's the propane heater, there's the mini split air conditioner. Um, with the arrangement I have, I can just see the top of my water heater uh, coming perking up through the floor. One of the interesting things as we begin to move through the last room um, is that my gray water. Now most RVs will take their gray water and they'll have to empty it and dump it somewhere as they travel. Mm -hmm. Not so for me. This particular bus is intended to develop the techniques for uh, not having to dump water, be it waste or just used water. So when I shower or when I uh, do dishes in the sink, my water goes into my gray water tank. And then periodically there is a float in that tank. And when the float gets high enough, that float comes on and the pump triggers and pumps my gray water up into my swamp in the back of the mini farm. So as we come through the door, the, the swamp is the very first thing you see. It's actually on a shelf um, uh, about 30 inches down from the ceiling. The swamp is about nine inches deep. Uh, currently houses some duckweed, frogs, bath, and a handful of other water plants, um, and they're doing actually quite well. The purpose of the swamp is to house not only the water plants, afford me the opportunity eventually to plant some rice, uh, water chestnuts, water lettuce, various other water plants that are edible, but also as the solids catch for the aquaponic system in general, and additionally, I will be moving any of the small tilapia fry into the swamp so that they have room to grow out there before getting eaten by the bigger fish. Additionally, I'm in negotiations now to acquire some freshwater uh, shrimp or prawn and actually have prawn um, growing in the swamp as well to consume a lot of the waste material that gets pumped into the swamp area. As you walk in the door to the mini farm, yeah, you see the big shelf in the back, that's the swamp. Immediately to the left is my composting toilet. Now this is just a, a typical composting toilet you might see in, in a lot of small tiny homes or RVs. Uh, I, I do my business in the toilet. It, it does separate the urine from the solids. And then when I do the solids, I cover them with uh, different kinds of uh, dry material. Um, the urine is caught, and right now I'm having to dump it because my distilling unit isn't operational yet. But above the toilet is an algae farm. Basically, I have four vertical tubes, approximately three foot each. I'll drop a light down the center, and I'll actually grow um, either chlorella or spirulina there. Now, the purpose of the algae tube is twofold. One is the algae will take the fertilizer from the fish tank that it gets from, from that water, and it will consume that, plus it will then take air that's bubbled up and draw the carbon dioxide out and release oxygen into the room. So I get a, um, uh, an air supply from this. 
uh, one of the papers that I found uh, this last year, and I'm still I'm trying to find it again because it has a reference in it, uh, suggests that just 21 liters of algal solution can provide enough oxygen for one human. So I'm working to, to learn the calculations and the relationships on just how much I'm going to need to produce enough oxygen to help me survive uh, as well as the fish and the swamp plants. Um, my fish tonight, <laughs> um, once you pass the toilet, the next is the 300-gallon fish tank, of which, as I said, I've got about uh, 50 tilapia. About half of them are full-grown. The other half are still coming along. These fish have been in this tank for almost a well, yeah, well, since July of last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I am letting them grow out at this point. I will harvest them probably this fall sometime and, and restock. Um, this year I'll be restocking by bringing my new tilapia fry and putting them into the swamp area. As they get big enough, I'll transfer them from the swamp down into the fish pond. On the right, as you come into this room, is the garden. This is a 10-foot long by 2-foot wide garden bed. It's approximately 18 inches deep overall. Um, It is filled with lava rock in the first six inches and hydroton for the remainder uh, up about halfway. So I get about 9 to 12 inches of hydroton. And then I have some workspace above so stuff doesn't flop around. Currently, I have one tiny spider plant and one tomato plant that is still producing truly a handful of cherry tomatoes. I have three little green ones and two that are going from yellow to red. Uh, when these tomatoes are done, these will be all be uprooted. I'll be cleaning out the bed um, to uh, do a fresh start. During this fall period, I'm going to be rebuilding the fish pond and cleaning out the garden bed uh, and restocking the swamp and to begin testing the actual behavior and processes that we have on a regular basis. I'm going to be involved in a mission. Well, let's see. I'll be presenting at the Mars Society Conference in Tempe on what is that? October fourth, fourth, and fifth, no, and sixth. I'll actually be presenting yeah. on Friday at two thirty, and I'll be in the sunset room, whatever that is. I don't know what building it is. You know, they told us what rooms we're going to be in, but I don't know what building it's going to be in. So well, we know, I'm we watching know the website it's closely. ASU campus, correct? Yes. It is on the ASU campus. ASU is usually pretty good about allowing the organizations to put lots of signs around. So I think it's going to be in the IRB building. I forget what that stands for, because I think that's where it was last year when I presented. Last year, I presented the theory um, in my talk about a life web, which is what I'm building here in the back of the bus. And the idea of the life web is is that every species that is in here contributes at least two and preferably three values to the system as a whole. The tilapia provide food for the crew. They also provide the waste material that becomes fertilizer down the line. The water also provides all sorts of benefits um, 
as storage, as heat sink, as cold sink, whatever you want to call it, depending on where you are in the cycle of living. The swamp provides solids catch from the fish. It provides home to fingerlings. It provides home also to other species we'll be adding, such as snails, the prawns, and um, uh, something else, and I forgot what it was. <laughs> and those species contribute to keeping the swamp a living ecosystem in and of itself. Water from the swamp drains down. Uh, I actually have a piece of corrugated metal here between the swamp and the garden. It, all it, do, it does two things, basically. It, it, it spreads the water out a little bit, and also because it's bumpy and causes the water to bounce a little bit, it helps to aerate the water a small amount. And then it drops into the garden, and from the garden, the water drops into the sump, and from there, a float triggers it to pump out and back to the fish pond. I've achieved a sense of uh, automation with the system by using floats and timers. The fish pond pump triggers once an hour for 15 minutes, and it pumps water up into the swamp. The water flows through the swamp, and the swamp is designed to create a continuous channel. It's a large, it's a, like a seven foot wide by about 32 inches deep um, or wide um, box that's about 12 inches tall, of which I filled to nine inches. The water has two, it then has two dividers in it that are designed to channel the water along the back. It loops down a center channel and then comes back down the front channel and then drains down into the garden. This gives me roughly 22 feet of channel that the water can allow the solids to settle in without having to have a huge creek to flow through. Once the water gets down into the garden, the rest is traditional aquaponics. It fills until a bell siphon hits the point where it's uh, at capacity, and then it drains. So it's a flood and drain garden, and then the sump captures the water down there. There is some settling down there, but not much, because it's pretty well almost constantly running. The sump pump actually runs approximately, let's see, I think the last time I watched it, it runs three times after filling the garden uh, from the one time of an hour that the pond pump runs. And it's pretty steady now after, after four and a half years of, of development. I have added uh, plexiglass covers over the fish pond that reduced my evaporation uh, by almost 75% from early on. I was losing almost 40 gallons of water a week out of the fish pond due to evaporation. But by adding the covers, now I don't, I lose maybe, if I'm lucky, about five to seven gallons a week. Uh, and of course, most of that's coming out of the swamp now because the swamp is uncovered. The additional evolutions are, there is a shelf under the swamp that has a light in it. Uh, that is my seedling area and compost bin. And that actually completes what's actually currently installed. Um, for the future, I will be adding, as I said, prawns and some fingerling tilapia, maybe even some fingerling catfish if I can find them, to the swamp. I'll be adding um, 
hopefully some catfish this fall to the fish pond. And my seedlings are just getting started. I should be adding those to the garden here in about two to maybe three weeks. And I'll have about 100 plants I'll be putting into the garden space. Um, the last item is, is I'll be adding the black soldier fly into my toilet uh, a little bit at a time to see how they work. My very first experiment with black soldier fly as a human waste processor worked very well. Um, however, I ran into the sadly, to me, embarrassing situation where I could pr not provide sufficient food to keep the black soldier fly larvae in the toilet. And so, it took I'm about... I'm not so sure what you're alluding to because you're, you're saying you're not full of it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, there are those who would who would say that, yes. Um, but uh, with, so with two deposits... Say you are full of it, but okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With two deposits on average a day, which is... I've been fairly regular over most of my life. I've been blessed that way. Uh, but two deposits a day is not enough to feed a, a, a colony of, of black soldier fly larvae yeah, in the compost toilet. So what I'm working on now is, is the next phase will be to manage the population. And I'm, what I'm hoping is that as I incorporate soldier fly harvesting from the toilet, to create food for the tilapia, I'm hoping to be able to manage the population in the toilet such that one person can successfully um, provide for the black soldier flies. So, <laughs> uh, and uh, but it's yeah, it's not something that you expected. So it's one of those no, things it was transportation. Yeah, right. Um, there are all sorts of, I think I counted once, where, where is my notes? I don't know my notes. I don't know my notes. But in count, let's see, we have the plants as a, as a group are a species. Tilapia is a species. Black soldier fly are a species. Algae is a species. Um, the prawn is a species. The catfish is another species. So that's what, six right there. We'll have, be adding worms, which is uh, seven. We'll be adding mushrooms, which is eight. So my guesstimate is, oh, and snails makes nine. I'm up to 10 different species that are being incorporated into this miniature farm uh, in an effective way so that each species contributes but also draws its sustenance from the ecological environment I've created. So far, the tilapia are doing well. The plants do well when they're planted, of course. Uh, the swamp is new. I'm still learning about that. Um, driving with a swamp in the back of your bus is problematic at best. <laughs> um, I was able to save about half of my duckweed and most of my um, smaller plants. Um, I, I found a piece of... Uh, plastic here to put up and stop the thing from overflowing so much. And it looks like it's doing okay. I'm down about half capacity. So I did mount, I had a way in the swamp that I can, um, my, I have a tube 
in one end of the swamp that allows it to drain. It's basically like a riser. It's, it's about five, six inches tall. And I found that I can double the depth of my swamp because there's a layer of rock and sand in there as well. I can double the volume of water in the swamp by simply adding a coupling to the top of that pipe, and that raises the level of the swamp when I'm sitting somewhere, which is great because now I've got a larger volume for fish, for shrimp, for whatever else happens to be living in there. When I'm driving, I can pull that coupling out, and the water level in the swamp will drop by at least half, and that will give me enough flexibility that I can drive and not have to worry about the swamp overflowing when I the brake's in a hurry. Learned those lessons when I was building the fish pond for the very first time. Yes, I'm sure that you've learned but, a lot of different things from experimentation and from uh, obviously cause and effect. I'd like to go over <laughs> real fast. <laughs> I'd like to talk about the conference itself for the uh, last for a couple minutes here. Sure. Um, well, you have pics of these areas that you're describing, which you did really, really good job of describing. You know, some people like to be able to see it. You have pictures that you're going to be showing at the this conference. Absolutely. Um, in, in fact, not only will I be having pictures uh, of the interior of the bus, but I will also have diagrams and flowcharts that actually show how the different species fit together during the course of my conversation. Um, I have a, um, uh, things that show how the very evolution that I've gone through, starting with aquaponics, and then we add the swamp, then we add um, the waste processing, and so forth and so forth. And so those charts will diagram that in a layered approach, so you'll see how everything built up. In addition to being able to see the photographs of the um, bus interior and, and the mini farm. So yeah, absolutely. Okay, what else can we expect if we go to the conference? What other what other people are speaking, and what uh, what else can we listen to, and and the other presentations that are going to be there? Um, I was just going to look that up. I've actually got a copy. <laughs> I think I've got a copy of the um, schedule on my phone here. Let's see here, it's there. Yeah. Yeah. I offloaded can, it, darn it. Is there any any place anybody can find this online so they can take a look and see if there's things they want to move over? And, Absolutely. And if you go it. to marssociety.org, marssociety.org, right on the front page, at least in the last little bit, they had the uh, front page talks about the conference and um, provides a link, I believe it is, I'm looking it up now. Yeah, you can register, you can you can uh, join the society. They've got the preliminary schedule right there at the top of the front page. Now it is a PDF, so you can bring it up on your on your phone and so forth and check it out. Um, Dr. Zubrin, uh, president of the Moon, Moon Society, will be speaking uh, several times during the conference. Uh, there are astrobiology things they'll be talking about, synthetic biology. There are talks about drilling for life on Mars. There'll be an update on the Ingenuity Mars helicopter. Um, and they'll be talking about searching for life as well. In some of the other conference talks and panels, um, we'll, they'll be talking about 
uh, technology roadmaps, society uh, impacts that affect um, how we get to Mars or the moon. They'll be talking about terraforming. There are things about building a Mars base. There are things about um, talking, there'll be somebody talking about Starship and the timeline for its development. And, and just, these are just a handful of the things that will be talking. Now, I will be speaking in the Sunset Lobby on Friday at 2.30 in the afternoon. Um, and at the same time, there's uh, somebody talking about process-based behaviors, and somebody will talk about Mars launch windows. Oh, don't waste Mars launch windows. Got to read the whole thing. Um <laughs> And then there's uh, there'll be a panel that evening on the Mars Desert Research Station. Uh, networking reception will be after in the Gamish Theater. We'll also uh, there'll be talks about the Chinese space program, um, Honeybee Robotics, Era Mars mm -hmm. Analog. Um, did you know? You know, I didn't know this, but there's like 17 different analog locations throughout the world now. No, I didn't. NDRS uh, is MDRS is just one of the oldest. High Seas has been around for, I, I want to say, three to four years. I could be wrong. could be longer. But I think that's about it. The high Seas is in Hawaii. Uh, they actually had an all-female crew go through there about a year and a half ago, I want to say. Um, there's the Lunares over in Poland. Um, there's Mars Society itself has the Devon Island installation up in uh, northern Canada, way over on the east side. Uh, they just sent a crew out to start working to refurbish it and get it ready for a new season. Um, I will actually be in southern Utah to help with a refit at the Mars Desert Station there. Um, and there are, there is actually another analog being planned for Mongolia, I think it is. Oh. So, so they're this, doing a big thing. For those who are looking one down in South America. MarsSociety.org is right underneath the information. It's a new preliminary schedule. And if you yeah. click on the schedule, there's there's a lot of stuff going on there. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. Thursday is back. Looks like it starts with opening remarks at 9 a.m. on Thursday, the October 5th. Goes until lunch and then after afternoon track sessions as well, and it's quite a lot extensive. Of science so, they're talking about. Yeah, and then of course in that evening uh, will be the panel on how to search for life on Mars. So yeah. definitely, and then of course Friday is packed again from nine in the morning until the evening, and Saturday looks Saturday like as evening. well. Yeah. So and Friday Sunday will be a half Sunday, a day. So yeah, and only go to one o'clock. The closing remarks at one o'clock. Now these are all Arizona times, so keep that in mind, everyone. Right. But um, definitely very packed weekend. I ran into an interesting question when I was posting notices about this interview online. Um, in one of the groups, I think it was uh, Friends of European Space Agency. A comment came up that asked me, um, let me find it here because it should be real easy to see. Um, 
Well, I thought I could find it. <laughs> um, but the question was asked, what, how would Europe be involved in the course of the conversation I might offer this evening? Well, there were several things, one of which I pointed out is that, is that a biological support system is critical for the development of a, of a long-term space program. But as I've had this conversation with you tonight, I've realized that Europe has the Melissa uh, project, the Eden project is over there, or maybe they are the same thing, I can't remember. Um, both of those are geared towards biological life support systems research. Um, the Russian BIOS uh, series of experiments uh, started well before uh, or was making progress well before the United States NASA program. Uh, it's sometimes I, I get the feeling that ecological life support or sometimes called biological life support is the holy grail of long-term space travel and settlement. Unless we can learn how to manage a small ecosystem, not only are we going to fail at long-term space, but we're ultimately going to fail here on Earth. And this is the one benefit that has become very clear the more that I research in the bus. One of the things I will be adding very soon are to quail cages. The thing about having a miniature farm for a space crew is you can't, I mean, you could, but it's really uncomfortable to have fish morning, noon, and night. So in order to vary that diet, the incorporation of quail provides a very welcome uh, addition because the quail will defecate into the swamp, providing uh, huge amounts of nitrogen for the plants to grow with. There will also be uh, the eggs from the quail, and one cage will just be quail for eggs, and one cage will be quail for meat. And each quail provides we, enough meat for one, one adult. Well, we won't talk about how you're going to be eating birds. So we're down to about 60 seconds, and so I know you, you talked the whole time. <laughs> but I'm that's sorry. Pretty, There's just so that's much. Typical, that's pretty typical for you. So uh, we definitely have to get you back on after the conference. That way you can talk about you know new things that you've learned from uh, from that experience and also oh, that would be fun. Yeah, that would be fun. So definitely, uh, uh, you know, you have a birthday coming up at the end of next week. So happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you know, it's nice to let everybody know it's your birthday coming up. So there you go. So uh, with that, I'm going to say uh, good night and uh, we'll, we'll do this again real soon. I look forward to it. Thanks again, Patty. Okay. This is KWOD Radio, and this is Patty Holstring signing off. We'll do this again real soon. And being excited with some new stuff there coming up and new shows. So keep an ear out. Until then, have a great week.